Welcome once again to Inside DC, the podcast of the Arendt Fox DC Business and Policy Practice. My name is John Bowker, and I'm the practice group leader of the Government Relations Group at Arendt Fox. My guests today are my colleagues, former at-large D.C. council member and now Aaron Fox partner David Grasso and senior government relations director Oliver Spurgeon. Today, I'm going to talk to David and Oliver about the release of the mayor's budget and what you can expect from the D.C. budget process this year, which is unlike any year in the district's history since home rule. So, David, let me start with you. The mayor finally introduced her budget yesterday after a two-month delay. What are the major initiatives in the budget and why did it take this long for it to arrive? Well, thanks, John. Uh, the budget was delayed mostly because we were uncertain about the federal dollars that were going to come to the district. And the council came together and gave the mayor extra time in order to get it right. And I think that she's done a pretty amazing job, to be honest with you. It is not an easy task to spend another $2.3 billion, but that really is the underlying story here. There's more money this year than I have ever seen in the D.C. budget. And the mayor has made clear what her priorities are. Affordable housing. Affordable housing has been the thing that she has focused on since she came into office. And this year she's putting $400 million into the housing production trust fund, which is more than double what she's ever done before and makes it the largest housing production trust fund in the entire country. Some other highlights from this budget that the mayor dropped yesterday include no new tax increases at all. However, there is a tax decrease. For the first time, the mayor recognized that the paid leave fund, which funds the Universal Paid Leave Act in the District of Columbia, is overfunded. Something I'll note that we did discuss when we were passing this law in the beginning, but now we can actually see it come into fruition. So businesses are going to get a one-time cut from a 0.62% tax down to a 0.27% tax. That, to me, is a really great sign that the system is working and that the mayor is taking close looks at it. One other highlight I want to raise, and this is something that I think we all ought to talk about some more, is where is the money for education? You know, I feel like the mayor has kept the status quo for education. Obviously, she has increased some funding for early childhood. She's done a few other things for construction of new buildings. But out of the American Rescue Act money, there is really a lack of investment in what I think is the most important long-term strategy we have, which is making sure that all of our residents get an education that they deserve. David, you mentioned the $2.3 billion extra from American Rescue Act funds and how you feel that more of that should have gone toward education. But where did the mayor make her choices with respect to where these allocation of funds will go? And apart from education, how do you assess these choices? Like I said at the beginning, John, it's not an easy decision to make, and certainly there are many competing priorities. The mayor decided to put the money into affordable housing into economic recovery, both for businesses as well as for residents who have struggled from the COVID pandemic. These choices that she made, I think, are good choices. The challenge, though, is how do you also lift up the communities that have been most impacted in a meaningful and equitable way? I think doing that through an investment in health as well as in education would have been something that could have been done in a real meaningful way and made a huge difference. One little tidbit I want to note is that she did put $58 million into trying to attract grocery stores and sit-down restaurants in Ward 7 and 8. That is a real amazing choice by her that I support tremendously. The communities that live in Ward 7 and 8 have struggled. Residents there have never had the kind of grocery stores and restaurants that others have enjoyed across the city. And I think it's going to take economic incentives to bring those businesses to the communities that need them the most. 
Well, Oliver, you live over in Ward 8, um, and you always remind us that budget choices really reflect people and reflect the policy priorities of the government and how they're going to affect the average resident in the District of Columbia. So what do you think the policy choices and funding decisions that the mayor has made here mean for D.C. residents and businesses? And who would you say are sort of the winners and losers in this budget, in your view? Thanks, John. That is a really good question. As David mentioned, this year's budget was simply just kind of a massive injection of funding due to the fact that we got so much money coming in from the American Rescue Plan. And that is good in several fronts. You know, there are significant investments in housing and increase in the per people fund and the education front, and then also some anti-violence provisions as well that got funded. Money to help returning citizens, about $8 million for violence interrupters. And then really also, there's this new idea of really trying to make sure that you're pairing mental health professionals with policing. And so there's about $7 million so that the Department of Behavioral Health and DDOT and DPW can also engage when 911 is called and not just police. And so there's an effort here to try and reduce some of those confrontations so that we can really invest in people and try and move away from a justice first approach. And so it's really innovative to see that. David mentioned the efforts to really attract both sit-down restaurants and also a full-service grocery store towards 7 and Ward 8. Those provisions have been included in previous budgets before. There have been some tax credits, and now you're starting to see engagement from groups and companies that are interested in coming to these areas. I know that folks over at Little have expressed interest in coming to Ward 8 and Ward 7, and so that's good news. We know that these sorts of investments to incentivize businesses to relocate, they do work, and so I'm glad to see that the mayors doubled down. You know, I was really excited to see that there was a big investment in on-the-job training. As people have lost jobs and we've had somewhere around 200,000 folks file for unemployment benefits since the beginning of the pandemic last year, helping folks retrain and get reemployed going forward are going to be important to ensure that the district can remain on sound financial footing and that our economic base can grow. One of the key points here looking at the budget is that in the out years, as we start thinking about how that money from the American Rescue Plan winnows down, we do know that there's going to be a budget shortfall of about $271 million. But the hope is that as our citizens get back to work, as our economy continues to grow, and as our tourism and hotel base continue to rise, we know that the district's economy is going to grow. And so hopefully that's a challenge that we'll be able to overcome in the out years. But by and large, this is a very good budget. It's focused on people and invest in the places that we need it to, housing, health care, and education. So, Oliver, I know you work across many sectors with many different businesses and folks in the community. So I appreciate your assessment of the budget. Do you think that this budget reflects what folks in the business community and residents have requested of the mayor? And who do you think is going to be happy with this budget? But will there be anyone who's critical of this budget? Sure, sure. So one piece to keep in mind here, I've been in the district since 2009. So I'm settled at this point. I can't remember a single time when we had a reduction in the police department's budget. And so this is really kind of new ground. It's clearly in response to much of the agita and uprising and conversation that advocates around the district have been having for years and which have become really pronounced over the past year. So seeing that reduction for the police department's budget is new and novel, although the mayor did also highlight that despite reducing the budget, she is trying to increase slots and funding for the police academy and for police recruitment in the out years as well. And so we've had this long running discussion about the police department being kind of undermanned. And so this is actually that paradigm shifting. And for once, you're seeing both a response from the mayor in response to the discussion from advocates saying that they want less funding for the police and more funding for community-based and mental health supports and violence disruptors. And so we'll see if this approach works and see if it's embraced by the council going forward. 
David, let me turn back to you. The mayor's introduction of her budget really is sort of the starter's pistol of the budget process. And now we are going to launch into the council's review of the budget. And of course, you know better than anyone else that once the council receives the mayor's budget, members are going to propose changes. So what do you think the council's priorities are likely to be now that they have the budget in their hands? And what parts of the mayor's budget do you think they'll embrace? And what parts do you think they're going to want to change? John, I think you nailed it right on the head. You know, the fact of the matter is that this is a proposal, and I think a lot of people forget that. It's similar to every other jurisdiction. The executive submits a proposal to the legislative branch, and the legislative branch is really the budget authorizer and appropriator. So what happens now is we'll go through a series of hearings where the public can weigh in on this budget. The council will deliberate and eventually vote on a budget that they can all agree on. So you will see some changes. It's not as easy as people might think it is to make these changes changes, but I will hope to see some changes around education, especially to increase the funding there. We know that this pandemic has had a tremendous impact on students who didn't actually get to take advantage of the kind of virtual learning environment that we had to embrace. And so what we would like to do is see a lot of high doses tutoring and other of those priorities put into this budget to lift up those students who were left behind. The nice thing is, though, that the mayor set a path forward to do that. She recognized these needs. She embraced them by funding them to a certain level. But I think what you'll see is the council will add a little more here, add a little more there when they think their priorities have not been fully met. It's not something that's done easily and it takes a lot of time. I think also you will see an increase in mental health services in the council's budget. A lot of folks have experienced trauma and adversity during this COVID pandemic period, and people are going to need the kind of support around getting back to their normal lives that include supports around mental health. So even though the mayor did put a significant amount of money in to try to get school-based mental health services up to basically providing one provider in each and every single school, that is not going to be enough in my opinion. I think you'll see community-based providers needing more supports. I think you'll see council members wanting to look for supports for adults as well, not just students. And that's something that I think you'll see come out of this. But overall, John, I think you won't see a lot of changes. Uh, I've read a lot of articles since yesterday, a lot of tweets, and mostly council members are very much in support of this. They're praising the mayor's work and her entire team, Jenny Reed, city administrator Kevin Donahue, and all the others have done what I think is a pretty admirable job here. That's great. And even though the positive tweets have come and particularly coming out of the pandemic, Everyone wants to work together. There will be things where the mayor and the council will spar with each other, I'm sure. And so where do you think those areas of disagreement might be? What's going to get the most attention in this budget? It's really hard to tell. I think there'll be some work, even though Oliver, I think, spelled it out beautifully that the mayor is committed to trying to change the dynamic around policing in our city. I think there will still be some pushback on that. I think you'll see some members that want to work hard there. There might be some move uh, instead of just generally addressing affordable housing. There might be some council members that want to address the eviction crisis more directly. You might see others that want to see her do more preservation Rather than creation of housing, that's something that could come out. But all in all, I mean, this is 
pretty amazing job that she's done, and I think that we can be happy to see that. One note I'll make that is interesting, we'll see where the council goes on tax increases this year. I was going to uh, ask you about that. That's something that's come up before, and one of my former colleagues noted that he is concerned about the fiscal cliff that Oliver mentioned earlier, where when all the one-time money goes away from the federal government, that we might go down this enormous deficit area, and that increasing taxes would help with that. What you'll see is Chairman Mendelson push back on that. Chairman Mendelson will say, well, when that happens, we will then have right. that as a tool in our tool belt to fix that problem. But for the most part, it's going to be a challenge, I think, especially for new members who've never done this before, to figure out where they can engage, how they can engage. I've read budget books now since 2001 and every single year, and it's never gotten any clearer. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's not an easy thing to do. Thanks, David. So, Oliver, David spoke a little bit about what the process is going to look like from now until when the council finally votes on the budget. And it looks like the final vote you know, could happen sometime in August, deep into the council's usual recess period. So what does the process look like from here? I think it's actually, well, what, about 53 or 54 days from the time that the council asks us to take a vote? 56. I think it's, I think. What, is it July 20th is the, the deadline that people are looking at? So, you know, this is really a mad dash. We don't have as much time as we would like, and that also means that advocates don't have as much time as they would like to get in there and engage. But some of the key things that they can do are to reiterate their preferences right now. As members down at the council start talking about what their pet priorities are going to be in education or healthcare or homelessness prevention, we know that there are folks all around the district who represent hundreds or thousands of people that represent these various causes who are concerned about homelessness, who are worried that there hasn't been a strong enough investment in youth, or who are worried about returning to the workforce and the implications for COVID. There's still a strong contingent of people who are worried about the disparity of black folks in the district who are coming down with COVID compared to others. And so some folks may want to see a higher investment in COVID rates and response in Ward 7 and Ward 8 in particular. And so there's a lot of the dynamics at play here. The one thing that advocates can do is go in, call, set up appointments to talk to their council members and express their priorities for why the budget should be shifted, why it makes economic sense, and then to also think about the dynamics that are going to be happening over this next 54 days. Going into July, we've got a couple of things happening. One, the economy is clearly going to keep improving. We expect that COVID rates are going to come down. And there are some things that are going to improve the finances of the district, like the ticket amnesty program. We're going to bring in some additional revenue. And that'll change how council members kind of think about some of these priorities because we'll have more money coming in. So there's a lot going on right now. But folks around the district can continue to engage, number one, by hiring the great team here, Aaron Fox, like I always say. You guys are <laughs> stalwart down at the district and friendly faces. But you should work two, for our marketing department, Oliver. <laughs> and number two, just making sure that they're staying in contact with the folks who represent them. So let me just drill down on that a little bit for a moment. So the Wilson building remains closed. We don't yet know when it will be fully open for meetings. In the past, you could go down to the Wilson building, you could buttonhole members, you could testify in person. What are the specific tools and techniques and strategies that you would suggest for folks who want to influence this budget? Should folks be testifying virtually? Should folks, as you say, be setting up those virtual meetings with council members? Should they still be engaging in social media? What are some of the specific things that both businesses and residents can do to try and influence this budget? Of course. So the virtual environment from the pandemic has done a couple of things here. It's made the ability to influence policymakers equitable because you don't have to take time off of work to go downtown to advocate for more funding for your kid's school. You can do it on your phone or on your laptop 
from home or from wherever you are. And so it means that more people can get involved in the process. You can call, you can email, and you can set up a Teams call or a Zoom call with your council member's staff or that particular council member to talk about what's going on. And one of the key things here is making sure that you can write op-eds for local uh, independent papers and also do things like change.org petitions so that council members can actually hear repeatedly that there are lots of folks in the district who care about particular issues. And so there are a number of ways to get involved and get engaged that don't require you to go down to the Wilson building. Well, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, the introduction of the mayor's budget to the council really is the starter's pistol that starts this process. And we are now literally off to the races, as you indicate, of a pretty quick sprint, which will get us to the end of this process. But as we close out this edition of our podcast, I want to ask both David and Oliver if they have any final comments or observations for our listeners about the budget. And David, let's start with you. I just think that we ought to celebrate the fact that the mayor has embraced the dedicated funding for the arts again. And there's over $38 million, the 3% of the sales tax, and that's been holding steady. So I'm really excited about that. And David, isn't that projected to grow by 10 to $12 million over the next several years? It is projected to grow, John, simply because of the dedication that we did, which makes a lot of sense. And that's what we were hoping for. There might be some down years in the future, but the more it grows, the more we can support our arts community who are an economic driver in the District of Columbia. And I think we should all be excited about that and the way that that's been evolving and the, and the mayor's support for that is incredibly important. Thanks, David. Oliver, any final comments or observations? Sure. As a kind of moderate, business-friendly Democrat, I'm always impressed when our leaders think about ways to encourage new business growth, because that's where job creation actually comes from. It's new businesses. It's not really kind of existing businesses. And so I was excited to see that the budget cuts the amount required to file for a new business to $99. That is extremely impressive. And it's going to encourage some folks who have gained new skills during the pandemic or who may be thinking about opening a business to file and create a business. That's a good thing. It lowers the burden and allows folks who may not have a ton of money, but who have a great idea to go ahead and start a business. And so I appreciate that. I was really excited to see that. And then the other piece here, is really about people, as I mentioned. There's a provision here that allows community-based groups to actually have um, festivals and other public events and public spaces, and there's no filing fee for that. And so once again, we're really thinking about how to bring that community in D.C. together and do it in a way that makes sense in 2022. And so as people get vaccinated and we all get healthier together, we can all come together for free. So that's good news. Well, thank you once again, Oliver and David, for your insights. And this has been another edition of Inside D.C., the podcast of the Aaron Fox D.C. Business and Policy Practice. We hope that you will join us for future podcasts. And please do not hesitate to reach out to us at Aaron Fox if there is any way we can assist you. Thank you.